In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash big climb. Hey, it's Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. We got a fun show for you today because we're answering your questions. And as usual, you have some great questions. I'm joined by David Ubbin, the Athletics Tennessee beat writer. He's one of the best writers we have on our staff. He has a great story out right now about filming basketball scenes on television that is focused on that very, very famous scene with Carlton Banks, Alfonso Ribeiro, making a desperation heave on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's great. You should check it out. We talk a little bit about that, but we answer your questions mostly. And the first question is a great one. It's about what preseason camp is going to look like. And one note on our answer to that question, because we did talk a little bit about Georgia and the quarterback situation there. And we mentioned that there was a possibility that Georgia might be getting yet another quarterback and that quarterback is JT Daniels. At the time we recorded the podcast, it was a strong possibility that JT Daniels is going to transfer to Georgia. Shortly after we finished recording it, he announced he is indeed transferring to Georgia. So that is new information compared to when we recorded the podcast, but we did talk about that a little bit. Not entirely sure as of yet if he's going to be eligible to play this season or if he's going to have to wait till 2021, but we'll see on that. So now we know there's a little bit more depth in the quarterback room at Georgia. We just don't know what year that is going to take effect. But that's a team that is very intriguing in light of our first question. So is Texas. And on the flip side, a team like Florida or the team that David covers, Tennessee, where they've had some continuity, can those guys take advantage? We talk about it now with David Ubbin. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. It's a Dear Andy live on tape, but not really on tape because we don't use tape anymore. We will come up with a name for this segment edition of the Andy Staples Show. You guys ask me great questions every week for my Dear Andy mailbag at The Athletic. The problem is I can't answer them all. If I did, it would probably take you, oh, I don't know, about three hours on your one bathroom trip that you make to read that column. And it would be 6,000 words and uh, people would be wondering what you're doing in there. We can't have that. So we have a, you know, bite-sized chunk that you can read, but we also bring some questions here so we can answer them. And I like to bring in guests to help me answer them. My, My opinions can get a little moldy at times. So we get fresh air, not the NPR show, but Fresh opinions, fresh takes, fresh piping hot takes. And today, those will be from Athletics Tennessee beat writer David Ubbin. He is fantastic. He's one of the best writers we have at the company. If you want to read something great, he just put out a story about filming basketball scenes on television, specifically in sitcoms. And yes, you, you know exactly which scene it's centered around. That's right. Bel Air Academy, Carlton Banks, The Big Shot. David Ubbin, welcome. I appreciate it. I uh, you can't hear it on audios, but I'm but I'm I'm blushing at the intro, Andy. Uh, I did enjoy that story. That was uh, that's a question I've had for twenty some years since I grew up watching those shows, and I was glad to go on the the offensive and answer them. And the cool thing about 
you know that story that ran uh, on Thursday is I've heard from a, a lot of people since that were like I had the same question or I wondered about the exact same thing and I would you know take me out of the show and uh, you know what's going on with the small courts so uh, one of the great advents of the internet is all these things that we thought or experienced. Uh, you know, you thought, well, maybe I'm just the only one who ever thought that. Uh, rarely is that the case, and that was really cool uh, a response that I've seen from that story. Talked about Fresh Prince, of course, that famous scene, and some of the other things, and then of course, uh, Hang Time, the TNBC classic with uh, Reggie Theus and uh, Smart Guy, my own personal favorite uh, from the, uh, I guess it's the WWB. That's right. Re relaunched on Disney Channel, and it's on Disney Plus. I I recently started rewatching it. That was one of the reasons. Wait, why Smart that Guy's show, on uh, Disney Plus. I don't know the logistics of it, but it absolutely is. And, uh, I was talking to Jason Weaver, the older brother, and he was uh, he was a little salty because the Bel Air Academy jerseys you can buy them online. And he said, if anybody sees a Piedmont jersey, the uh, the good old red and white, he's like, let me know because I will rock that. And uh, I have not seen one, but here's hoping. We we gotta we gotta make that happen. I th- there's got to be a market for that. So well. That may be our, our next venture at The Athletic. You know, we're always looking for new revenue streams. So maybe maybe that's where we go is TV team jerseys. And, uh, you know, somebody needs to make a, a better Dylan Panthers jersey anyway. I mean, let's be honest. So uh, let, let's get to the questions. we got some good ones this week. Uh, we have dueling Brian's to open it. We have Brian with an I with the first question. Dear Andy, what will preseason look like for teams this year? Will there be any adjustments considering many schools lost their entire allotment of spring practices? This is a good question because you can go a lot of different ways with it. I mean, you look at what's going on. You just got the news that Oklahoma is going to come back and begin workouts July 1st. The SEC is going to be June 8th. Ohio State, we're expecting June 8th. Clemson, uh, they can come back on campus June 1st. They can begin working out June 8th. You know, so Different schools will be doing this different ways, and I don't know that practice is going to look the same either because there's going to be different amounts of workout time leading into that. How much work do you put on these guys? How hard do you push them during the the preseason camp? Because remember, most of them did not get any in-pad practices during the spring. And then the bigger question is, what if you've got new coaches, new coordinators, or an entire new staff how do you get everything installed and then get ready for games in the amount of time that basically would have been your spring practice? Because that's all you're going to have. You're going to get basically four weeks of practice. And so if you are Mike Leach at Mississippi State, if you are Tom Herman at Texas, who you've been there, but you've got two new coordinators, how much can you realistically get in before you have to start game planning? And is it going to take a little while to get the kinks worked out offensively, defensively, you name it. David, you, you've seen this. You know, you covered a, a new staff at Tennessee a few years ago trying to work this out in a normal season. What's it going to be like this time? I think they're going to have to figure it out. I mean, I think the coaches don't even know. I think they have to make an assessment. You know, you mentioned the lack of spring practice, but they're going to have to figure that out. When all their guys come back, they're going to have to figure out, okay, where are these guys at mentally? Like, what do they know? What do they understand? How do we have to um, uh, you know, do these installs? And then physically, where are they at? What can they handle um, you know, in terms of strength conditioning, uh, in terms of uh, contact practices? What can we do that, that uh, you know, we still feel like we're not putting our guys in danger? And that is going to have to be different every single place you go. You know, Tennessee, you know, at the, at the 2018 season, when they came in, uh, Pruitt staff, they did a lot more work. And, and they were basically doing like some off-season style training during the season. Um, because they just felt like they needed to get their guys, um, you know, fitness and, and toughness up. Uh, they just they didn't like where it was. And they got to the end of the season, and they had a very, very tired team. And I think they hoped that they could beat Missouri and Vanderbilt at the end of the 2018 season. They were wrong. They got whooped in both of those games. But I think their, their uh, view of it was, we got to do this now for the better of the program big picture, um, even if it costs us a little bit short term. And, and obviously, you know, with the way that they closed 2019 on a six-game winning streak, uh, it, it did pay off. I think they knew, you know, you're not going to win anything huge in 2018. It's about setting the foundation and letting guys know this is what it's going to be like. And so for the new staffs and new coaches that aren't really going to get the opportunity to have, you know, that off season, especially when you talk about bringing in, uh, you know, younger guys and, and uh, you know, that's not going to be normal for them. 
it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, the early part of preseason camp is uh, a lot of installs, anyways, and and but when you didn't get the chance to do that in spring, and you're doing it over Zoom, you know, for two hours a week or, or whatever you can spend on on that type of thing, it's it's going to be difficult, and teams may have to extend it. I, I think you know the short answer is there's not going to be a one size fits all, and the the long answer is. Um, we may see some some hilarious football this fall. <laughs> yeah, so remember week zero last year, Florida, Miami, and everybody's like, this stinks, this is terrible, the level of play is awful. <laughs> well, you might see a lot of that in week one, two, and three this year. Oh, yeah. Now, the, the SEC East is an interesting place to, to have this conversation, though, David, because things are fairly consistent at Tennessee. Things are extremely consistent at Florida, where the staff's been together for a long time, going back to, to when they worked together at Mississippi State. And then they've got a returning starting quarterback, returning skill players, defensive guys who all played roles on last year's defense, whether they were starters or not. Uh, it feels like they are maybe best equipped of those teams to deal with this. It feels like Tennessee is very well equipped to deal with this. Uh, South Carolina is breaking in a new offensive coordinator, Mike Bobo. But Georgia, the, the team that everybody expects to win the East, that has won the East the past three years, that's the one that's interesting because you've got a new offensive coordinator in Todd Munkin. You've got a new quarterback in Jamie Newman. Uh, there are rumors of maybe another new quarterback coming, but if, if he goes to Georgia, I'm guessing it's because he has to sit out a year. Uh, that would be JT Daniels. But we'll, we'll see about that. That there, We don't know about that yet. But the idea that they could go from no spring practices – and it, it seems like they're making some some fairly fundamental changes. That was kind of the whole point of doing all this, you know. And no Jake from, and four new starting offensive linemen. It feels like the other schools in the East. That's an advantage for them. I don't know that it necessarily matters once they play Georgia on the field. But hey, Georgia's got to play Alabama in week three. Yeah, that's going to be a uh, a challenge for them. You know, the good thing for Georgia is uh, my sources tell me they have a lot of good players based on how they've recruited the last few years, and that always smooths over uh, some of the, the rougher parts, and, and this is going to be wait, rocky wait. So for a lot saying, of places. So you're saying if you have a bunch of five stars, it's easier to replace the players when they leave? The great philosopher Ari Wasserman once told me that stars <laughs> that stars matter, and every night, you know, when I go in my backyard and, and look up at the sky and, and, and see them shining down on me, I realize, you know what? Stars do matter, and I think Georgia is uh, about to teach folks a lesson uh, in that this year as as they reboot and quote-unquote lose so much. Uh, well, they did lose a lot, but I, I hope folks uh, have looked at what they've added in their recruiting the last, what, four years or whatever under, under Kirby Smart. The Michigan fans were just starting to come back and listen, everyone, and now you have to bring up Ari <laughs> and Stars matter. Now they're gone again. Just gone. Thank, thank you, Dave. Ari's, Ari's bold take of, of better talent equals better teams is, is one that, you know, I know a lot of people are skeptical about, but I tell you what, uh, I, think it, I think it might work. It's the Fosbury flop of college it, football. It starts teams. an argument every time. It's amazing to me. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Gather around, kiddies. It is story time with Uncle Andy, and today I'm going to tell you about the morning of my senior prom. I wanted to make sure I smelled great for the blessed event, and so I went to Flea World. For those of you who know Central Florida well, Flea World was, and possibly still is, the world's largest outdoor flea market. And the things that they sold at Flea World, some were knockoffs, some might have fallen off the back of a truck. I, I don't know. I, I don't judge here. All I know is that I wanted to smell great for my prom. And I wanted that popular cologne that was a slightly lower temperature H2O. That was the, the new jam in 1996. That was the hotness. So I needed to get as much of that as possible for as little money as possible. And I bought an industrial-sized jug of it at the flea market. I think it was like 25 bucks. I know that I used that bottle of cologne until I was 35 years old. Do not follow my example when it comes to cologne. You can do so much better. You have many more options. You do not need to hit the dirt mall to buy your cologne. In fact, you need to hit hawthorne.co. Take their quiz. Easy questions. They ask you what kind of smells you like, how often you shower, and I hope it's at least daily, please. They ask you what a, a night out is for you. They ask you what your drink of choice is. And they provide 
the perfect cologne for you. In fact, the perfect entire bathroom setup for you. You can get your lotions, your soaps. But for cologne for me, they want me to get the work and the play. The work is your fresh and aquatic. The play is your warm and aromatic in case your significant other wants to nuzzle in the neck. And that's it feels like, you know, you're by the fire. So that's the stuff you need, not the stuff from the flea market. Hawthorne.co. Check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Use my promo code STAPLES and get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use my promo code STAPLES to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. It is interesting to think about, you know, the talent level that you have coming back, I think, does does matter more. It does allow you to to be quicker with this stuff. It, it, you you can get away with more. You can run fewer plays if you have better players because, you know, I, I think the idea would be teach them to run a few things well first and then you can expand as the season goes on. And I think that's what we're going to see with, with schools like Georgia, with Texas, putting in new, you know, two new coordinators. I, I wonder, like with Mississippi State, with Mike Leach coming in, his offense is actually fairly simple. It's more repetition. So, you know, K.J. Costello probably hasn't had time or the ability to throw at those receivers. Will that offense get much better as the season goes on because he just gets more reps with those guys? Because Costello's played in a really complex offense at Stanford. He's going to pick up the air raid very quickly. It's just going to be a matter of can he get the timing down with those guys? And, you know, he hasn't had the time to work with them that, say, you know, Kyle Trask has had to work with his his receivers or or Jared Garantano has had to work with his receivers. Yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 going to be fascinating. I mean, everybody's going to be in different positions. I think there's just so many variables and so many things that we don't know. But I think you know we could talk about whether or not the stress levels are self-imposed. But this is going to be a rough year on uh, on coaches' uh, blood pressures just across the entire sport because they're not going to feel prepared because they haven't been able to do the things that they need to do to feel like okay, my team is ready. And even that, a lot of times they don't feel that way. And now no spring practice. Uh, for a lot of places, at least, or at least not what they wanted. Abbreviated, you know, a camp's going to be a mess. Uh, you got guys that you didn't see for two and a half months. You have no idea where they're at. I'm sure when they get back, they're going to be disappointed in a lot of those things. So the coaches, I mean, this is going to be a, a, a rough year on the, uh, on the uh, you know, the, the coaches' stress levels for sure. Let's move on to our second, Brian. This is Brian with a Y, and he asked, does COVID-19 take us any closer to the Power 5 schools becoming a separate division? Group of five teams are going to really struggle financially, and some have already cut some of their athletics programs. My answer to this one is always the same, because I get it basically every time there's some sort of NCAA strife, whether it's uh, they've penalized a school and that school's mad about it, or uh, somebody made a decision somebody didn't like. And my answer is always, there is nobody looking to put on another softball tournament. No one is actively looking to do that. That's more work. And the Power Five basically already gets everything it wants anyway. So why would it break away from an organization for which it already makes the rules? Yeah, exactly. I think it's a more complex conversation, I suppose, when you start talking about Olympic sports or non-revenue sports and, and those kind of things. But from a football perspective, I don't know what the difference would be between kind of what Brian is talking about and the system that we currently have because – you mentioned it. The, the Power Five is autonomous. They can make the rules like they want and, and sort of flex on the, the, the smaller programs. But they already play for a trophy that no one in the Group of Five can realistically win. We've seen that so many times. If you go undefeated in the Group of Five, congratulations. Go play in the Peach Bowl and then have everyone yell at you for uh, crowing about going undefeated because that's what's going to happen. Uh, and even if they split, you know, obviously they're still going to have to play each other. You need those bye games to fill out your schedule, those kind of things. So what's kind of the difference? They, they already do sort of exist in two separate worlds, and the gulf of the haves and have-nots and the financial situation is only going to grow. 
But that's you know the, these two the, these two leagues are, are very different. And you look at the TV money too. You know, forty million dollars uh, a year for a lot of a lot of schools in the Power Five compared to you know five or six for a lot of places, and even that's high for some people in the Group of Five. You extrapolate that over ten or fifteen years. What what does that look like? It's uh, I, these program these places are already living in two different universes, and they're only going further apart, drifting further apart by the day. Yeah, and the thing is, the Power Five doesn't begrudge the group of five anything like they're they're not upset that the group of five is in the fbs they're in the fbs because the power five wants them in the fbs they want that willing pool of teams that will come you know take a check for a home game and you can fill out your home schedule as the power five school i mean if they didn't want that they would do something different the other thing the power five knows that having a kind of broad division one and, and by Division One, I, I mean all of Division One, which would be the Power Five, the Group of Five, the FCS, and also the, the Division One schools that don't have football. That creates a really robust NCAA men's basketball tournament, which is one of the most valuable television properties in sports. If you just had a Power Five tournament, it wouldn't get nearly as much money it, because a lot of what makes the NCAA tournament magical would be gone. So there's more money in this for the Power Five, doing it the way they do it, and they basically have legislative control. As you mentioned, that autonomy thing came in in 2015, and it basically allows them to Bigfoot the, the smaller schools whenever they want to. So, yeah, there there's no reason for them to change anything. If anything, if, if some of them are upset with the NCAA, and I know the SEC was upset with the NCAA for making unilater- a unilateral decision to cancel the spring championships at the same time they canceled the NCAA basketball tournament. Uh and, and look, the spring championships would have been canceled anyway, but the, the thought was, okay, you could have at least consulted with the commissioners in the different conferences before you made that decision. Let's say they're mad about that. Well, they'll just change the rules so that it can't be done that, that way next time. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. They, they have all the power. Yeah, and I, I think, too, you know, it's uh, – <laughs> Two things. One, you're never going to hear the group of five. You know, there's all this talk about, why well, don't the group of five just make their own playoff? They don't want that. No one in the group of five wants that. They, they feel like that. They'd make less exactly. money that way. And they, that will never happen. And that's why you're going to hear a lot of people from the group of five continue to, to buddy up to anyone in the power five that will even speak of expanding the playoff into eight teams because that's going to be their only access into playing for a national championship. If you can get in there and get one group of five automatic qualifier with your, you know, your five conference champions and your two at large, if we're just going with the basic system, you know, if they can expand the playoff, then with that, it's going to come some automatic access and, you know, for the first time in a long, long time, uh, the group of five is going to be able to say we can actually compete for a national championship if they can expand the playoff. Well, when they expand the playoff. Yes. Not <laughs> when they expand it. And my prediction is when this TV contract ends. I'm with you on this. The There will be a guaranteed spot for, for the highest ranked group of five champ. They're going to do that. And. I think that's actually a smart move because it does bring in a little bit of that that magic that makes us love the basketball tournament. Now, that team, whoever it is, needs to win a game every once in a while. So, you know, they're going to pray that that one of those group of five teams wins a game within the first five years or it's going to look really bad. But if if that team can win a game, then that just makes the whole thing more valuable as a TV property. So that's... I think the idea that these these two entities will split, there's no animosity between them that would cause a split. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. And I, and I think, I, I don't know, you'd probably have a better sense of this than I would. Do you sense any level of, at least on a human level, of the Power Five, rec, you know, people that, that have some decision-making power recognizing this is kind of messed up. <laughs> you can go thirteen and zero, and you get a pat on the back and a and a seat, you know, at the uh, the New Year's Six for an eleven a.m. game against some yeah. team that the well, SEC. Think, think about all the coaches and the athletic directors we know. Most of them have worked at Group of Five schools. If they're at the Power Five level now, they probably haven't been at the Power Five level their entire careers. The, the, some of them have, but most of them have been in the Group of Five, so they understand exactly how those schools feel and 
I don't know that they're completely sympathetic to them, but if it can benefit them, which when they expand the playoff, there will be more money for everybody, and, and so that does benefit them, they're going to do something that, to help. They're not going to do it at the expense of something for themselves, but if it can kind of the rising tide can lift all boats, then they're going to do it. All right, now we've got a uh, sort of fan ethical quandary from Brett. This is, this is an interesting one. Is it better to hope that a rival team has a good season and then loses a hard-fought effort against your preferred team or hope that a rival team has a bad season and loses a no-contest affair versus your preferred team? Is the desire for a meaningful rivalry, rivalry game greater than utter humiliation? And so today would have been my mom's birthday, and so I will go to her words of wisdom on this subject because you're not going to find many two-time Alabama, grad, Alabama grads who think this way. But this was her, her deal. She Two degrees from the University of Alabama, loved the University of Alabama more than anything. And guess who she liked every day but one day a year? I'm going to guess Auburn. She, liked, she, would, she hoped Auburn won every game so that they could come loose to Alabama because that made it more fun. That, that made the whole enterprise more fun. That made the, the trash talking for a year more fun. So I, I think just if, if you're a naturally competitive person or you, you know, you're, you're proud of your school, I think you want them to beat their rival at their, be- at their rival's best. I don't think you want them to just the rival you know, fell off and you just clobber them. That's no fun. I mean, I, I, Florida, Florida State is one that you know, happens close to where I live, and that, that's been no fun for the last – because it was Florida State just clobbering Florida – and then it flipped, and now it's Florida just clobbering Florida State. And there's no there's no drama there at all. That's no fun. Yeah, I think, you know, rivalries are about crushing hope. If your team is yes. if your team is crap, the fans don't care. But if they're good and they believe they can win, and then you break them, that's truly beautiful. That's rivalry at its best. If you embarrass a two-win team, their fans are mad at their own players and coaches and the state of the program. They're not mad they lost to you. They're mad at their own program. And, might I add, no one remembers those games. No one wants those games. The kick six was a tremendous moment, but you know what has made that ten times better for Auburn fans the next, you know, in the last, what, decade since it's happened? is that you replay it every single year. It's like one of the most indelible moments in the history of the rivalry. If that game was Auburn clinching, you know, its spot uh, you know in in the uh, in the playoff or was that that was the last year of the BCS, right? That was yes. last year of the BCS. Well, if they're if they're clinching their spot by beating Alabama by 20 points, no one really even, you know, especially if Bama is like 6 and 6 or whatever, no one would really even remember that game. But now that game goes down in history as a rivalry, and you, yeah, it was it was a uh, dramatic game and a close game, but infinitely more meaningful because their rival was good, and you beat them in a close game. Uh, no one wants to see. I wonder. I wonder if the Ohio State Michigan series has been especially satisfying for Ohio State fans because Michigan has been pretty good the last few years and just and cannot get over that Ohio State hump. Like remember two years ago when the game was in Columbus, Michigan was favored. Everything they'd done that season suggested that Michigan was the better team, and then Ohio State just blew their doors off. If Michigan comes into that game having just a ho-hum season and Ohio State wins like that, I don't think that game means nearly as much. Yeah, it's tough because there's so much existential stuff about Michigan because you're right, they have been, I think, pretty good is like the best descriptor for Michigan in the, in the Harbaugh era. But, man, the Ohio State game, at this point – I have no personal connection to the game. It is hard to watch. I feel bad for Michigan people because it's just like every every November I'm watching that game and I'm just like, man, I I can't help but put myself in the shoes of of Michigan fans, and it it is well, difficult just want to watch. Them to win one, yeah. just 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 to feel what it feels like. Because <laughs> even even the one they won recently was that Luke Fickle interim year yeah. after Trestle got run off. I mean, it, it's not – that one doesn't really count. So you want them to, to beat Ohio State at full strength just to feel what it feels like because there, there are people who can essentially buy cigarettes now legally who don't remember what that feels like. I mean, I guess, you know, 2006, but – or excuse me, 2000, 2006 Ohio State won, but I think it was – I believe it was 2005 
that I'm thinking of. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's very strange. Now, the team you cover with its two rivals right now, I think they would take it like if Alabama's bus just got lost on the way to the stadium and they forfeited. I think Tennessee fans would take that. The, uh, in that the cigar smoke would be would be wafting by halftime if the bus got lost for sure. And, and Florida, same situation. Now they did beat Florida in 2016, but it's been a, a very long, frustrating period in that series as well. And so I think they take anything they could get with those two particular series. But once once Tennessee gets to where they they want to be, they're going to want to play those guys and beat them at, at full strength. Yeah, and even that Florida game, you know that that whole season to beat Florida and Georgia, if you're Tennessee, and still not win the East. Is hard to do, and almost so when you when fans look back at that Florida game and even that Georgia game, you know there were some great moments in there, but that's that's a, a source of frustration for the Vols that, that I oh know. it just brings them more pain yeah. because <laughs> you, you have you have the way they the way they came back in that Florida game, and then the way they won the Georgia game, which is the the Dobbs nail boot game uh, with the the hail mary to Juwan Jennings, and then the next thought that pops into their mind is champions of life. <laughs> that's that's the hardest part, is you go from that high to champions of life. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc all help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors and no artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code STAPLES at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code STAPLES for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code STAPLES. All right. We've got to move along from the questions. Those were fantastic questions. Uh, but we have a random ranking because we do random rankings when we do a Dear Andy show. And David was kind enough to supply the topic for this one. We, of course, have been watching The Last Dance, as, as everyone has. And, and David, I don't know about you, but for me, it was like reliving a lot of my, my teen years. Cause the, so the, the Bulls championships basically are me in high school. I think first, they won the first title when I was in eighth grade, and they won the last title my sophomore year of college. And so it was a very you know, important time. It's one of those where the memories are very indelible. The, you, know, you, you romanticize that particular period of your life. And so watching all that, it was more me being able to relive it than the content of the documentary and the the soundtrack didn't didn't hurt that either because they they just <laughs> nailed every song on that soundtrack so uh, for you you're a little bit younger than me but what what was that like watching you know the the period of for you it would have been what late elementary school through high school yeah so i was uh let's see 93 i was like six uh when that happened so Oh wow! Okay, I so was, you were early elementary. Yeah, school. yeah. so I kind of remember. I remember like playing outside. I remember coming home and watching the triple overtime game uh, in the '93. I kind of remember those finals, but and then I remember him quitting, and then I was very sad. And then when he came back, I was old enough and and sort of understood, and I was following like college basketball and so the NBA. A lot I more. got to see. I got to see Michael Jordan hit a double for the Birmingham Barons <laughs> and dunk a ball for the Chicago Bulls because uh, the Barons were in the Southern League and Orlando had a, a minor league team in the Southern League. So we, we got tickets and went and saw him play baseball. That's pretty awesome. And Yeah, and then I had a friend who had season tickets to the Magic and one year they were like, hey, we got an extra ticket to the Bulls game. Want to come? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, so. I, it, it was – so I, I – and then, you know, 96, 97, 98, I mean, I love those teams. Uh, I enjoyed Last Dance. It was 
tremendous entertainment, especially in, uh, uh, to quote um, 50 commercials, in these uncertain times, I needed that Sunday night entertainment. I, I loved it. I grew up on those teams. I will say it's not a great documentary. Uh, it's just not. It will not be on my list of the best documentaries. It's not honest the way it was made. No, we, we are doing the – I blew this introduction, by the way. We're doing the top five sports documentaries. Yes, yes. And yes, it will not be on either of ours for the reasons you're about to, yes. to say. It's not honest. The way it was made, I, you know, I'm uncomfortable with it journalistically. I mean, let's see, let's see, it's like me writing a profile of Jeremy Pruitt and then letting him read every word and being like, okay, are you good with all that? Are you, are you okay with everything that's in there? It didn't tell you much of anything you didn't know if you didn't live and die with those teams. It really didn't dive into a lot of the interesting stuff. And, and that Pacers series was so intense. I love those moments. Uh, it, it, it touched on a lot of interesting things, but it never really went full into them. And that's why it won't be on my list along with some of the other things we've mentioned. Yeah, the final cut for the, the main subject of the documentary is is the issue I have with it. If, if the main subject can decide what's in there and what's not, it's probably not. It, it, it's more of a hagiography hey than a documentary. It's just sort of, uh, this, is, this is meant to make me look good. And, you know, people say, well, Michael Jordan doesn't come out of that looking good. It does it in Michael Jordan's mind, because otherwise you wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. I loved it. I enjoyed it. It was super fun to watch. It's not a great documentary. That's where I landed. All right, so we're going to go five through one. So reverse order here. Your top five sports documentaries. I will start us off with my number five, and it is Murder Ball. Oh, okay. It is the, All right. It is the documentary about wheelchair basketball, which is I – mean, it, it will – it's gut-wrenching, it's inspiring, it's you name it. It's everything you want. That just missed my top five. I love Murder Ball. I, I was debating between Murder Ball and my, the, the, the documentary that landed on my top five, uh, Free Solo, the Alex Honnold documentary. Beyond him just being like a super odd person and sort of the cameras just capturing all that, the visuals, never seen anything like that. Never seen anything like that. I'd, I'd like to see this again in IMAX. I watched it at home on my TV I'd love to go see this in IMAX sometime. It, it is unlike anything I've ever witnessed. Uh, just it's a, it's an unbelievable. He's a free climber. Uh, I don't know anything about this. No no ropes, no yes. anything, no safety equipment. It's it, it's crazy because it's just like the whole time you're like, don't, don't yeah don't, yeah don't, pretty don't much. Please don't fall. Please don't. There fall. is a tension in this movie that is unlike anything I've ever seen in a sports documentary, and it is. Uh, fantastic so if you haven't watched it i think it's on hulu i think it's on a bunch of streaming services so you you should if you pay for any streaming services you'll be able to find it it's great all right so number four for me you may say this does not qualify for this category but but i say it does is last chance you now i realize it's a series i I realize they've had multiple seasons of it but i am fascinated by the world of junior college football and i want more of it you know i i didn't think about that i love last chance you i have never made it past like when it drops i've watched the whole thing by like two days later i loved uh, last chance you i was thinking more movies but you're right the docuseries is an interesting wrinkle i'm fine with 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 including it i love last chance you unflinchingly honest it's about more than the sport itself which i think is what really makes a great uh documentary uh last chance you one of my favorites uh, absolutely what is your number four my number four uh i have two uh, well, technically three 30 for 30s on here. Uh, I put um, number four, I have What Carter Lost, the story of Dallas Carter's 1988 team. Uh, it's a story. Oh, wow. It's a story about yeah, decisions. A it's a story about, uh, you know, camaraderie. It's a story about just, you know, how the different ways that life can go, even if all things considered, a lot of people were raised the same way. And I think it's a story about, um, People assuming things that are not accurate. I think you know people look at that uh, Carter team and, and people compare them to the U and uh, and Miami. They played and they let you know they were beating you while they beat you. And I think there's this idea that oh you know that's a that's a black team. That's the team that uh, oh those guys must have struggled or gone through all this stuff and they got in trouble obviously late in their lives or late in, in the, uh, their high school careers and derailed a lot of their lives. But that was not their story. You know a lot of these guys are you know. 
two-parent homes with money, and they just made bad decisions. Um, and uh, some guys didn't. Some guys went on to have unbelievable NFL careers, and, and it's um, it's a tremendous story um, about their team and, and what they went through and how their lives were shaped by that year. I, I, I love it. My number three is Pumping Iron, which early Arnold, young Arnold, you get – really taken deep into the world of bodybuilding you learn that bodybuilding is pretty freaking gross but you cannot tear your eyes away i i wish i had seen that i have not i'm it's hard for me to get up for documentaries that i have no interest in like the sports themselves so i should say before we get too far up this list some of the best ones i have not seen icarus i have not seen when we were kings which probably would make my list and i have not seen pumping iron because i don't have a lot of interest in the bodybuilding world but I've heard good things. I've seen clips. Uh, maybe I need to so you, check that out. You would, it, it's one of those train wreck kind of things. You just wouldn't be able to stop watching. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't interested in bodybuilding either. It's just learning kind of the ins and outs of that sport and, and what, what you have to do to be at that time on top of it. It is – it's pretty harrowing. It's, it's, it's just – and it's just fascinating. So it, even if you don't care – now, uh, you know – a lot of us do lift weights and obviously I'm not lifting weights to do what they're doing, but I'm curious to see what the difference is and, and, and how that works. So it, it was, it was pretty educational for, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. All right. What, what is your number three? My number three, another 30 for 30. I went with once brothers, uh, a movie about, uh, Vlade Divac and Drazen Petrovic, uh, yeah. two very close friends that, that, Played together in the, uh, the the Olympic USSR team and uh, and ca- came of age as Yugoslavia. Yeah, is breaking it's the apart fall. And... It's the fall of their country. Uh, yeah, Yugoslavia, the fall of their country, and they had a rift and never really solved it. And, and Drazen, of course, famously died in, in the plane crash in I think 1993. I you know obviously Vlade Divac had a long career in the NBA. Uh, Petrovic was well on his way to doing the same. Uh, I didn't know a lot about their story. Um, I I was a little too young, you know, for some of the the, the, the splintering of, of Eastern Europe. Um, but all of those dynamics, and then just like the brotherhood and friendship, and it, it, it makes you think about people that you know in your life. And um, there's regret in there, and it's it's. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a fantastic movie that dives into so many things. I mean, the best movies I think can can deal with a global story and and bring it down and and talk about those things while also talking about you know one person or one relationship, and that's what I think sets uh, Once Brothers apart. So my number two, you've already mentioned it as one you haven't seen, and I would suggest watching it even though you're not interested in the sport because I'm not interested in this sport either. But it is. <laughs> Well, I, I say that it's actually about a lot of sports, but it starts out as a cycling documentary. Basically, it starts out because uh, Brian Fogel, the, the guy who makes it, is a cycling fan and an avid cyclist, and he wants to he wants to do a doping regimen just to see how easy it is or hard it is to do. So he gets hooked up with this dude in Russia, and it turns out to be the guy who's ru- running Russia's sports doping program. <laughs> And so it becomes a completely different project as this guy, you know, he calls and he, he says he's afraid for his life and all kinds of crazy stuff happens after that. So that one, I, I highly recommend it because it's one of those that it, it, you go into it and you're like, wait, okay, so it's a cycling thing. He just, he's trying to take some steroids and he's like, oh no, okay, this is, this is way more. And it's kind of like the sports version. There's one on, on Netflix right now called The Pharmacist. Which, if you haven't seen that, you should watch it too. The first episode is all about this guy who's a pharmacist in suburban New Orleans who basically spends years trying to solve the murder of his own son. That's the first episode. There's three more. Because after he does this, he does, by the way, solve the murder, he realizes that he's getting a lot of prescriptions in from the same doctor for the same type of drugs. And he basically predicts the opioid crisis 10 years before it happens and goes to work trying to get this, this pill mill doctor shut down. And it's unbelievable, but it's, it's just like Icarus. It starts as one thing and then takes a weird left turn and becomes an even more amazing thing. Yeah, that one's on my list. 
I'm, I think I may get drawn in because I got sucked in in the sports void. I got sucked into watching part one of the Lance documentary. And I people seem to have mixed mixed reactions to that. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. And I think that might be my uh, my, my sort of entrance into the cycling world. I, Icarus has been on my list for a long time. Um, but I've just never had the impetus to, to watch it. Partly because I couldn't convince my wife to do so. <laughs> well, what is, uh, what is your number two? My number two, uh, Hoop Dreams. Uh, one of the first sports documentaries that I ever watched as a kid it follows Arthur Agee and William Gates, two guys uh, from a, a tough part of Chicago. They go to an upper-class school outside of the city. It follows them for five years. So it's like you know, basically a basketball version of, of boyhood uh, in some ways um, as they literally chase their hoop dreams. And uh, there's just, again, there's so much involved here. I think I saw a little bit of myself in there. I didn't really grow up in a difficult situation, but I did grow up and, and went to a, a white high school and, and being like uh, the only person that has a lived experience, I think I saw a little bit of myself in that. And it's 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 fantastic. And I think you see like just how unforgiving the world can be in a lot of different ways and, and the ways that people deal with that. And, uh, and, and, you know, chasing hoop dreams is a big part of that. Uh, it's... It's an older one. I think it's what it was 1994. I think when it came out, and uh, you know, almost you know, well, more than two decades later, uh, it's still uh, one of the best sports documentaries ever. So I rented it when it came out on on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater because it wasn't wasn't go, you know capable of finding an art house theater when I was 16 years <laughs> old. But but it was one of those. There was a ton of buzz. I'd read about it in the newspaper, and so well, spoiler alert. That's it's my number one. Hoop Dreams is is the perfect documentary. It is absolutely perfect. They spent five years. It's it's the level of detail that you want in a documentary or in any sort of project like that. Because you know, as reporters, we all wish we had that kind of access for that kind of time. Because you really do get a chance to tell a complete story, and you know, you feel like you know these guys, and and you you understand why they're going through what they're going through, you know, what's going on with them. And, you know, they went into this project with no idea what was going to happen. You know, there was no clue whether these guys would be NBA stars, college stars, nothing. But it is absolutely compelling. It's incredible. The, the, the whole thing, you will you'll watch it and you'll leave you just Googling more about what happened to these guys. So I think if you have to pick one for me, that's the one. It's just it, it, the the way they did it, the construction of it, and just the story they told. It, I feel like it is the perfect documentary. It's such an undertaking, too. Uh, my number one. I'm shocked it's not on your list. OJ Made in America. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. That's the only oh, reason okay. why. It's one of those. I've got little kids. Yeah. It's, a, it's a you know mini series, so I need I need some time to set aside. I'm still. Got it set aside to watch because I heard it's pretty flipping awesome. So I was seven. The OJ verdict was ninety five, right? It was. It was ninety. It was ninety five. I remember my calculus teacher brought the TV into the classroom to watch because we'd watched the whole trial on television, and you know we'd watch the Bronco chase. So it was one of those things where the, there's no social media at the time. But everybody had seen every bit of OJ. Like that whole thing had it had fascinated the entire country, and so I I remember watching the verdict in my math class in high school. Crazy. Well, I was like eight. I remember hearing about it after school and kind of being interested, but like I had no frame of reference for who OJ Simpson was. I didn't really follow the 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 the, the uh, details of the case. I, I didn't really know. Um, and so, and you know, you remember it as this sort of moment in history, but like as an eight year old, like, I don't know about the Rodney King riots. I don't know about, uh, you know, sort of what it means to be, uh, OJ in America and how, you know, you know, the, the decisions that he had to make to, to get himself in, in his, uh, way of, I mean, I think some of the decisions that he made about how he was going to present himself and operate in this world as a celebrity, Compared to, you know, a guy that he came up in the same amount of time. And you talk about how Jim Brown did it, how Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did it. The parallels to his story and Michael Jordan's story are very, very similar. Um, but I didn't really understand it. I think that's one thing that makes O.J. Made in America so great is it, it really goes deep. It's about O.J., but it's about why was this such a flashpoint in America? Why did this 
captivate everyone and why did this um, really draw down a racial divide it's not about you know did he do it did he not do it um, you know I think uh, that that seems the evidence there is is rather overwhelming but uh, I think it's it's more about hey what what does this tell us about us what does this tell us about America and it is a story about OJ and there's a lot of detail about his life but it's it's the best sports documentary I think has ever been made because again, I think I gotta, it's I gotta watch. It's that a one. it's a it's a it's a commitment. I mean, you could call that a docu series yeah. as well. Well, and and I'm just hearing you describe it. I'm fascinated because I do want to hear about OJ's post football decision making process as he built his celebrity. Because so at my age, I did not. I wasn't old enough to see OJ as a football star. Mm-hmm. He was already by the time I got to the point where I you know could pay attention to things and and remember things. He wasn't playing anymore. I remembered him as the guy who was a sportscaster. He was Nordberg on the Naked Gun. Yeah. Like that's that's what I knew him as, and he was this beloved figure. I mean, everybody loved OJ. That's why the whole thing was so shocking. And so I I, I got to see that. I, that's you've now moved that <laughs> up on my my list of things to watch while we're uh, while we're still kind of slowed down before football gets really cranked up again. You know, it's but, funny. One of yeah, my I, uh, one of my uh, really good friends growing up, uh, his dad played with OJ for the Bills. He was uh, Joe Ferguson, the quarterback on those guys, and, and I went to school with one of his kids. And in their living room, they had a picture of him and his mom and his dad and OJ. I don't know what happened to that photo after the fact, but I imagine there were some some awkward conversations there about that. But yeah, it was odd because I I didn't understand why this guy was like such a big deal, and and you kind of understand later on. And I watched the FX series, I enjoyed that. But this is uh, it's a whole other animal. Well, I will I will add that to my list. Uh, hopefully, we've given you some stuff to add to your list as uh, as you keep looking for things. If you're in one of those states where you're still not allowed to do a whole lot, you probably still need more to watch. Uh, but there, there's some good stuff out there. David, thank you so much for joining us. I am going to now go watch the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air <laughs> basketball episode again because you've inspired me, and that story is fantastic. And if you haven't read it on The Athletic, go do it now. David, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Anytime. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining. Get ready because things are going to start coming fast and furious as teams start coming back, coming together, working out, and moving toward a college football season. It certainly seems that is the direction everybody's going. We're probably going to have a lot of news to digest as that happens. So get ready for a probably more eventful than usual June on the Andy Staple Show. Not sure I have anything to compare it to because the Andy Staple Show did not exist last June. But my guess is it's going to be a lot more eventful. We'll talk to you Monday.